Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Well, I'm excited to have you hear this conversation with Joe DeFeo, who is uh, has been for as long as I can remember, one of the world's best regarded and best known experts in quality. Connecting first with Dr. Joseph Duran, who was the father of American quality along with several others or several dads. Joe's always had, among all of the things he's done in his life, an iron-clad interest in having us understand quality. Not only understand it, but do it. Put quality into practice. So I've known Joe a long time, and I've. And what I love about this conversation is that this is the Joe DeFeo 4.0. <laughs> He's at a stage in his practice life now in his 60s where he is excited i think <laughs> yes he is about all the things he has to learn now because of the onset of digital digitization in the world and how that's affected quality quality management and his own practices and how he can continue to be influential as a consultant as a teacher as an author in this day of not being able to be in each other's physical presence, which he was masterful at when he used to be out on the road for so many days of, of the year. So this is a, a, an exploration of how a peer of mine has kept himself relevant and therefore indispensable when it comes to who do we ask when we need to do something serious about our quality. Joe DeFeo. Oh, sometimes you can ask Dave Furon too, and I'll refer you to Joe DeFeo. But I'm working on the same issue. Relevance, indispensable, practice is my quality. Quality is Joe's practice. So here is Dr. Joe DeFeo. Well, folks, today is a big day for David Fearon because I'm having a chance to have a conversation with a good friend, an old friend, and one of the most peripatetic friends I ever had, Joe DeFeo. Peripatetic, fancy word for always on the move, uh, always looking to where he can make a difference next. And clearly, he's making that difference today. and in his new relationship with attained partners uh, we can hear about that but joe uh, when i first met him was a consultant for the duran institute and that was in the 80s some of you remember the 80s <laughs> and uh we've known each other and been friends ever since i've uh, served on joe's board when the institute uh, was in that configuration uh and so I want to go back to that word peripatetic, Joe. Uh, while you continually been in motion in the best sense of the word, I've said before I started recording that you've kind of held steady at the same time to your grounding in uh, quality, quality management, and everything thereto pertaining. If I were to, let me ask you this, what do you hold on to tight and you'll never let go of while you're trying all this other new stuff about quality? Uh, the fact that, first of all, thank you. And I have a new word that I have to learn to spell. Peripatetic. Uh, yeah. My, <laughs> my, my mom used to say it simply, you never sit down. You're always on the go. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I translated that over the years from being one of seven kids and one of six boys in the middle of all that. Yeah. So the one who ate the fastest got the most, the one who, you know, did the most got the most. So I was always on the go. Um, I love it. But, but I, uh, just repeat that question again, because I forgot to say hello when I wanted to say hello. 
Well, I was impertinent not to uh, say hello <laughs> first, but uh, <laughs> there's another word to write down. <laughs> Good Lord. I haven't shaken off my college professor ways yet, have I? <laughs> After seven years, you'd think I'd be able to use simple language that <laughs> people will you know, understand. It's, it's, but no, it's funny you say that because you mentioned Dr. Did the Durian Institute and when we met and Dr. Durian. And yes, uh, Dr. Durian, just based on his age, wrote in old, I call it an old English language, like a real professional old English language. And he had phrases. And and I tried to use I for, for about 20 years, those phrases and everything worked. But today, the, the language has changed so much that people don't understand the real true English writing or an English narrative. Yeah. Um, he, they're into, into literature, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, he was a scholar for sure. Yeah, and, yeah. and very, and very much of his age, you know, at, at the time you met him, he was far along in age, but he was just starting a new wave of his career. Wasn't he back in the eighties? Yeah. He, he began the Institute when he was 78 years old. Yeah, and um, he, had a, he had a great following, and as you know, we we managed to keep him around until he was 103. And I think the last time we had him in a meeting, he was 102. So he stuck around a long time. Um, I'm sure you're going to. By the way, I've always referred to Dr. Firon as the the guy who will outlive Dr. Duran, and at the same point, starting to look exactly like him. Uh, but he's no never mustache yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the baggy, saggy eyes. Yeah. They're getting there. <laughs> you know, but um, the thing that I hold on to the most um, is that the the management of quality has been changing forever. But what you hold on to is that it's still the word that a consumer or a, a user or a person that uses a product or service still uses to describe the goodness of that product. That's right. And so so there's there's at least in our language, English language, quality is the determinative factor in a purchase. Uh, and of course, price is relative to quality because um, the more features that you have on the product, the more it costs. And so the higher the quality, the more the cost. And at the same time, the, um, the, the, the better the product, the less, yeah, the less um, defect, the less failure, the, the cheaper it is to operate that product. And so quality is still the word. And so for my 35 years, the goal has been to hang on to the fact that that word is not going anywhere and that meaning may change a little bit. It just gets broader and broader, which means the, the people who expect your product or service to be fit for purpose has a much greater purpose now. Yeah. And, and so although the definition expands, it's still what the customer wants. And given that what the customer wants, it's what the customer is willing to pay. And are they willing to pay you for that service or product? And that drives the whole concept of quality management. Uh, that said, too, the quality management methods and tools uh, are evolving very rapidly with the onset of technology. So the, the practice of quality management and being a quality manager or a operational excellence uh, person is changing quite, quite quickly. And uh, that's probably the area that you're probably most interested today. Well, I'm I'm interested in that, but I'm interested in you, and I'm I'm interested in how you yourself have kept on changing through all of these uh, cycles and eras, and uh, funding, no funding, uh, top of the line uh, to uh, something else is coming along to take its place. You know, how many times did they declare quality dead, Joe? I. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I think we all kind of smiled at that. But you've you you have persisted all the way through. Uh, how has that affected you as a human being? Yeah. So um, I I started a book, and you were contributing to that book about ten years ago, which I haven't published yet. And it was going to be the lessons learned that I learned along the way that made me a good employee in my employment and, and then the owner of Duran and, and what I looked for in employees that were good and what I looked at companies and mm -hmm. what those employees were good. And if you recall, we came up with the, the, the term, the indispensable employee. Yeah. I remember and, that. and what makes an employee indispensable. And I was starting to think back uh, uh, about all the 
things that make someone indispensable because I truly believe that no one ever fires a really great employee. Um, they will, they have to find a place for them. And uh, unfortunately, some people do, but because there's bad managers out there. But so in thinking about that and, and your question you just posed, um, I, I, I use the, maybe I could use this real life story. I started teaching high school and the technology of teaching at the time was a blackboard. Yeah. And, and then that blackboard, um, also we produced, uh, what we called mimeograph, which was, um, I guess printed paper that smelled really good. <laughs> you remember the blue, the blue, Absolutely. The ditto machine. (laughs) And and then and then the blackboard became a whiteboard with markers. Mm -hmm. And then we had an overhead transparency, which was basically a white, a clear acetate that we would print words on it. Then that acetate became produced from a printer. And then the printer, uh, then the uh, the thing that we printed on, which was a Croy machine, which is a label maker then was changed to a word processor, which we could type on a word processor to produce the acetate. Then we had a computer, which then the computer produced it on an acetate. Then it went on a slide. And so that evolution of the tool to present information, you know, from paper to blackboard, to whiteboard, to acetate, to today's PowerPoint, and the ability to make a presentation easily, clearly um, has changed completely. And, and, uh, to the point where uh, we would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to produce. Matter of fact, it was a million dollars to produce the Dream videotapes, fifteen videotape series uh, back in the um, in the in the seventies, and then in the nineties we did the Quality Minute. We had a hundred Quality Minutes. It took cost a million dollars. Yeah. Those same Quality Minutes, if I were to produce them today, I could probably do them for thousands with with the AI tools and the AI apps that are out there. Easily, yeah. Today. They convert words to pictures and pictures to video and video to audio so fast. Mm-hmm. So if you think about what keeps me going, and I've, I've tried to explain it this way. I was an um, industrial art graduate from Central Connecticut, and I focused on woodworking because that's what my heart was all my life. I always mm-hmm. played with wood. And wood is a good way to build things and feel good about yourself that you build something. Well, when I left teaching woodworking, I had to focus on something that kind of gave me that same pleasure and it became for good presentations. Yeah. And, good, and so I focused on making good presentations and good classroom experiences for the students. And I always got good grades. And of course, my dad always said, I like to talk a lot anyway. Um, but talking is not teaching. And so you've got to create ways. So I always looked at creating the mechanism to teach the material, uh, my project. And then I joined Jurian Institute and I realized that quality happens project by project. And so I always had new projects to go on, when, whether I was working in a company or whether I was working with a client, everything was project based. So I always That's looked right. at that. So what keeps me going is the ability to create something new all the time. And you cannot create something new anymore by just resting on your laurels and doing the same old technology over and over again. I, um, and, and same thing goes for our, for our, um, methodology. For instance, you know, back in the 19, early 80s, uh, quality circles were, you know, popular term used. Well, yep. If I walked into a company today and said, we're going to do quality circles, either the company has no clue what it is and you can start fresh or someone says, well, that's really old. You yeah. can't use the same term anymore or employee involvement teams or self-directed work teams. So words change, phrases change, but the, the concept is the same. So what keeps me going is always um, staying, wanting to stay relevant. Um, one of your, one of your other, um, guests on your show, Tom Casey, brilliant guy who I've got to know, um, you know, that we had a talk one day about staying relevant and I have found that, uh, to be indispensable, you have to stay relevant. Uh, and I think you have to look at today's musicians, you know, people want to know why an 80 year old Paul McCartney still makes music. And the answer is, well, because that's all he ever did. And if he stopped doing that, he'd be no, he wouldn't be relevant anymore. In his own mind, he wouldn't either. He, he would, I'm sure, uh, shrivel up. You know, uh, I was Dr. Dre writing at 100 years old. And uh, so st- I think you have to stay relevant. Therefore, you have to stay on top of the trends in technology. Sadly, some of those trends in technology move so much faster 
Oh yeah. Then then I'm, I, I'm capable. Of, so you know, blockchain is just something I just can't comprehend to get my house. <laughs> but my son does, and so. But I try to stick to the technologies of uh, of learning, and teaching, and presenting, uh, and you know, then obviously in production. So p- publications. You know, we we still you know you have to publish. Well, we thought you have to publish articles that are of smart content, so people can learn from them and based on research. And uh, unfortunately, I just saw something today where um, a lot of the publications are AI developed, and they have real no thought thought behind them or references behind them. No. So so when I write when we write something, we always list the references because we want you to know where they came from if there's a reference. Mm-hmm. And so many people are just you know stealing ideas, stealing concepts, and you don't know if it really works or not work because there's no reference of histor- historical performance. That's the downside of it. Uh, but, you know, I've got to learn some great new tools. And, and right now in, in our field, you know, quality 4.0 is the, um, is the adaption of digital technology to the tools and methods that we've been using for years. And if you're in a manufacturing plant, you probably had a head start uh, on that. But, you know, the, the, the quality management system, which was a series of policies and procedures and processes and documents mm-hmm. that everybody learned and carried out, you know, then get transferred into a quality management electronic system where it manages the documents for you, makes it easy to change, makes it easy to control. Uh, and then, you know, the, the manual part of that is collecting data to analyze to make sure you're in conformance. Well, that is being, you know, technologically changing today because there's a lot of sensors that capture data live and plug it right into that quality management system, which is connected to the company, you know, ERP system. Uh, So the concept of, you know, digital technology and quality is making data available for everyone to see in real time. And when you're in real time, you can make conformance to quality decisions quicker. Yeah, no, it's moving. Uh, and, and at the same time, we're getting a much better handle on what consumer behavior is. So the design of quality, the design with quality in, involved and the design of quality products and services is becoming faster and faster. And so you've got this design to keep up with customer behavior and consumer behavior. And you've got the operations who have to create products with defect free products to keep it going is actually possible today with all the with the technology because you shorten the time it takes to analyze data and maintain there's systems that maintain themselves now. So that's well, changing the role of quality. It's it it is, but it sounds it sounds to me in my head that there's a cadre of established managers out there in every sector, healthcare, manufacturing, you name it, who are closer to my generation than they are to the generation X, Y's, and Z's that are coming up. And this uh, opportunity that's presented to them through technology to put into the hands of the person doing the actual work, all the data that they used to covet themselves back in the day through reports and all that, this must be shaking them up. And you're working with them and, and when you're invited to talk with them and consult with them. What what's your sense of what the challenges are for today's uh, in place managers t- to deal with this speed of change and all of the reallocation of their power to where it can be used instantly? So think about this: the technology that is uh, going to be used is going to be purchased by someone, and the purchasing power is in this you know sitting up there in the in the leadership roles. Yeah, and the leadership roles are. Um, one of kind of two, I'll say one of two cultures, one of the, you know, over 50 and under 50 uh, years old. So there's a clearly a purse that's held by people who have, who have maybe non-digital techniques in their background that worked. And there's a group under 50 who's just living on it. And I, I think the influence from the, uh, the technologists have been very helpful in getting the purses opened up. Um, if we think about one of the biggest digital transformations uh, the the implementation of SAP like systems, ERP systems. Oh yeah, 
that was tremendous and millions and millions of dollars. That was a big deal. That was early yeah. in your industrial yeah. career, yeah. wasn't it? And, uh, you know, that's like wave two and wave three. And, and here we are in four. Now, the price of those have come way down. So one thing is the technology is a lot cheaper than it was. And so, you know, think about buying Microsoft software today. Or, you know, it's much cheaper than it was. SAP systems were hundreds of millions and they're not millions. And, uh, and also the stuff that you could, for the average employee, it's pretty cheap, you know. So the technology price comes down, kind of like Moore's Law shrinks computers, this, mm-hmm. you know, drives down. So the price isn't as bad. Um, but the, the way work gets done, so you have to think about the way work gets done before you think about technological solutions. So I'm, I'm running this three-part webinar I'm running this three-part webinar on, you know, how to get started and thinking about quality 4.0. And you kind of evolve at a revolutionary rate. You got to move faster. And the, you know, the basic purchase is what is the quality management software you're going to use as a platform? And, you know, they can range from 5,000 to 100,000. But that's nothing compared to a million. So think about that. But how the product is made, how the service is delivered is really you're going to drive what technology you have. Yeah. So the, you know, some of the older technologies are having, you know, the, the technologies behind some of the newer ones. So, you know, much, much. So the, the cost of technology going down, leadership making a decision and the technologists having impact and the fact that you never go back. You never go back. Once the technology is on the table, you can't go back. You got to, you got to take it or catch up. Door opens um, one way and that's it. Yeah. And just like my quality circle point, you got to go forward. Yep. And so the organizations may go too slow, but they eventually go forward. Most of them will go forward. Uh, but they, you know, the, the the advice that I have for the, the the leader that has to make the decision, you know, you might be a small manufacturing factory of 40 or $50 million. You know, you're not going to get to 200 million and keep hiring people because the people aren't there. Uh, you've got to, you've got to invest in the technology. And there's another part of it that says, I'm going to reduce my workforce. Well, most of the machinery in your manufacturing plants are where the operators are working. Uh, the, the jobs aren't being replaced there. The quality professionals changing the way they work. The management is changing the way they work. Uh, so if you're not smart enough to bring in the technology, someone else is going to replace you with the technology. And uh, I, I find that to be one of the alarming uh, facets of this right now is that the operations professionals, the head of ops production, are the ones driving quality 4.0 more than the quality function is, and and the reason is because quality function serves production, and production is saying you're not delivering a product that is efficient and effective enough for me. I still keep making defects, so they're looking for anything to reduce the you know cost of operation. And so if you use better technology, better sensors and better data collection and data analysis and do it quicker, faster, better, then you're going to get the return on that investment. And so operations are driving it. Finance is driving operations. So, you you know, the, the profitability of the company is driving the people who can drive profitability. And those folks are driving everyone else. That's right. And so my advice is to, to learn as much as you can about technology. What happens to the the person that you trained for years and still certify in many ways through the uh, what whatever is uh, going on in ASQ and other organizations are still trying to prepare the quality professional. Yeah, and it's it's what you prepare them for. So, for instance, there's you know I use Dr. Duran in my company, so we believe that you have to think about quality management. That there's quality in design. Quality in, you know, operations, which is quality control, quality assurance, mm-hmm. and then there's continuous improvement, quality improvement. And when you think of those three aspects of quality management, those won't go away. Right. But the emphasis on, on what one is most important. So if we look at the 1950s and 60s, quality of control was just producing product to meet customer needs quickly and mostly driven by military standards. It was all about control. There was little quality by design. And nobody was doing much in continuous improvement until somebody changed the paradigm, mainly the Japanese. And boom, we had to continuously improve to beat them back. And then we had to figure out how to design better. So we think of those three pieces and we think about uh, the role of the quality professional. The technology 
and the digital 4.0 is really impacting quality control and quality assurance in the most impactful way. And therefore, but it doesn't eliminate quality, it means you have to shift your attention now to more in quality of design and quality of improvement. Now, the quality improvement, which is, you know, root cause analysis based, mm-hmm. uh, is getting easier to do because there are AI tools which actually analyze data for you. Yep. You know, there's software out there like Tableau that basically, you know, looks for patterns in data and queries the system. So you still have to do cause and effect thinking because it's not going to tell you anything more than here's what it says, picture the data. So there is much better tools going on there. And then in quality design, the real, um, you know, we have been successful. Most product-based companies have been very successful at creating innovation, but the innovation has been internally focused on technology versus the customer needs. Yeah. And with all the digital information out there available on consumers and customer needs, the input to quality and design is so much better. Oh, absolutely. So, so the products are going to get better, right? So the quality professional has to understand how to help them sift through all that new information. Right. So the role changes, the quality professional changes. And the Marriott Society for Quality is doing a pretty good job of keeping up with the quality 4.0. But what they haven't changed, and this is where we've come in, and we think it should change, is what does a certified quality engineer learn today? Yeah. What does a certified quality manager need to know? And and the same thing goes for you know for your business major. What are you teaching your business your your business uh, students in college? Right. Uh, is the same thing. Are they prepared for the new journey, or are you preparing them? You know, like your past and i think that's where the big change has to come in is how we prepare them because um it just seems like a lot of the stuff we learned just doesn't work anymore it doesn't apply anymore you know yeah and and uh do we we really i got a 13 year old she's wondering why do i have to learn so much about um what the, the 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 constitution says and bill of rights says she says i can just google it when i need to know and if I need to perform an algebraic, by the way, I don't know when to perform an algebraic application, but if I need to it, I'm not going to be an engineer, but I'll look it up. So this concept of looking it up, looking then it up. you to say, okay, then what's, what do you need to know? Well, you need to know how to be resourceful. You need to know how to utilize these tools. You need practice on the computer yeah. um, and, and not just learn it from Facebook. Um, yeah. You know, it looks like everybody's getting rich using these tools, but uh you have to you have to shift some of that. You know, there's certain obviously subjects that you have to base it on the past, like mathematics. You got to grow and learn. Uh, but I think the concept of statistical analysis in in uh, operations is getting much easier with software yeah. technology. But it you is. still have you know the the heart of all of that is is intuitiveness and understanding how the cause and effects work. So that intuitive part. Now that leads me to the where we started our conversation, Joe. What do you think would make an employee indispensable today in a company or agency where technology is there now? uh, It's no longer the issue as much as it was, and yet there's still this employee. Uh, What does she or he need to be doing therefore learning and knowing in order to be indispensable. Yeah. Let's let me define it as a, as this way. So I'd say, you know, an indispensable member of your staff or your team, not subject to being set aside or neglected Um, an indispensable obligation. Uh, And I think that part of that word set aside or neglected, that also drives the inclusivity uh, today, the, um, diversity, inclusivity that is required to be um, not, you know, to avoid neglecting. And some of the words that are synonyms of indispensable is, you know, an essential worker, a necessary worker, required, integral, uh, right. needful, vital. So right. to be that person, and, and, and I want to relate it back to the old Durand days, to be that person, I think fundamentally you need to know your company's products and services better than anybody. Yes. Uh, your company's products and services better than anybody. When I joined Duran, there was an incentive system 
the the you had background on a subject, but the more you were certified and qualified to teach it, the more money you made. So I said, hey, the best way to be uh, overqualified, you know, get paid more is to learn them all. So I got qualified in them and therefore it gave me bigger opportunities. So learn your products and services. The second one is, uh, and I know this is a hard one because this goes back to the type of people there are in the world. Um, Um, You have to accept change as the norm, not the exception. The change in the business is going to happen. Not it's not the exception. It happens. Yeah. Whether it happens um, slowly or quickly, it's going to happen. So one is you have to embrace change as a norm. It's going to happen, and that change is going to be disruptive change because it will always disrupt somebody. Disrupt somebody. So change is always disruptive, but it could disrupt your business in a good way in the end because you're going to a better place. Um, it's 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 kind of like the, you know, a divorce of a couple. It's very disruptive, but they both get to probably a better place at one point in time. Yeah. Uh, so so accepting change is a norm. The other one is, and this is really important, um, and I'm learning a little bit more about it, but if you are not a collaborative employee, it's a pretty good chance you're going to be neglected. Um, innovation happens through collaborativeness and collaborativity. I use that word collaborativity, which means we all get together and we we try to do our best to collaborate because yeah. those differences between diverse, you know, diverse opinions and diverse ideas and diverse thought uh, and diversity of culture and diversity of person and religion, all of that collaborating on a purpose, like a developing a new product is, I think, the biggest driver amongst teamwork today. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think it's always been there, um, but teams in the past were driven by some form of a leader who was more outspoken uh, more the boss yeah. than the rest. Today, yeah. true collaborativeness is everybody's almost equal in that room because we have equal thoughts. That's right. Just diverse ones. So I think the third part is you've got to be very collaborative. Yeah. Uh, if someone says, you know, what teamwork skills? Yeah, listening is good and talking is good, but I'll take a quiet, collaborative person who can't give me a PowerPoint presentation over anybody and give you a PowerPoint presentation and can't talk. So, yeah. you know, collaborative, I think, is the third one. Uh, I think another one is persistence. Uh, yeah. So many times you can get knocked down uh, in an organization because you get passed over for a promotion or you get passed over to be picked on a team. And um, I, I found that I had a boss years ago, Jim Fencer, and he used to stand looking out the window. And then when he when he retired, he put a statue, a little thing up of him standing out the window. I'll never forget. But I asked him <laughs> one day, I asked him one day, I said, I said, Mr. Fencer, I said, how do I get more money? Because ask for it. <laughs> so he says, you know, just ask for it. And then we'll tell you if you're worth it or not and versus waiting for it. And so I, I found that persistence always wanted to make more money enabled me to say, how do you make more money? You make yeah. more money by doing more, creating more value for the company and yeah. asking for it. So I would yeah. go in and say, hey, I think I deserve a raise. And he said, why? I did this, this, and this over the last six months. Says, you know, you're, you're right. And so you always tell me the ones that got the most money asked for it. So I think that's what persistence means to me is that you're willing to go the extra extra mile, extra yard. Yeah. And um, and here's another one. And I think this will be the last one. No, there's these are all great, stuff. man. There's a whole bunch. But the last one is get involved in things other than your job within the organization you're in. Uh, I remember getting on the 50th anniversary committee. I get on a newsletter um, because those are the only places you're going to meet people other than your team that you work with all the time that are in higher places. That's right. I got to work with the leadership of the organization when I was 30. And, you know, these guys were all in their, late in their careers and they were presidents and vice presidents. And, and you learn so much from them. You don't get that opportunity, you know, if you don't get involved in those other things. And so many people just, you want to go home. Well, if you, first of all, if you want to be indispensable, that means you want to have a career in this particular company. Yeah. Uh, and so, hey, how many of us stayed 30, 40 years in our companies in the past? Why, how do you stay that long? Uh, you know, we did that. And today there are companies worth staying that long in. So, so one of the things you want to do is say, listen, if I'm here for the long term, then I need to, you know, brush shoulders with people who are here for the long term. And I can't get that sitting at the bottom of the pyramid. 
but you can get it by involving yourself in these other things. Can't, Makes you know, a lot of sense. Fundraisers, campaigns, or even if it's a small company. We were a small company. We had our marketing team. They always got involved in giving back and we would do fun things and they'd go out and say, let's do something for the poor. Let's do something for people who can't eat. And so it doesn't have to be a big company, but once you get yourself outside of your, your walls, you realize that that helping others and, and having your leadership see you help others really helps and goes a long way. I remember uh, one of the primary uh, means of achieving uh, higher levels of quality were the project teams that you and your consultants would instigate all over the world, basically. And it seemed to me that when we when we look at the makeup of those project teams, it was an opportunity for people who were would have been otherwise obscure uh, to be put on those teams, in part because they always, the really a good project team would have a mix of people, some who were running the machine, some who were serving patients for the hospital. And then there was always some higher ups who had the power on the spot to implement things. Uh, are the project teams still in the picture, Joe, out there? Or is there- Yeah. As a, and as a matter of fact, um, you know, let's, let's think about the concept of team in general. Um, you put a team is a group of people working towards a common mission. Mm-hmm. So within a business, um, our sales team is working towards selling more. Our design team is worth designing new products. Our production team is producing as many products. So the team is there with a common mission. That's the operational teams. Then the teams that are there to improve business performance, transform the culture, change technology. Those are things that cut across uh, all these functions. That's right. Multidisciplinary. Yeah. Those teams have to be multidisciplinary. And in the past, Getting a multidisciplinary team from a multinational company is very difficult. So the team doesn't go away, but the multidisciplinary virtual team comes into play. Yeah. And and that has been very, you know, COVID gave us a taste of that. But I'm finding that, you know, I would rather have uh, one hour with eight people from around the world. Um and a really good focus session, ideation, doing ideation on something important because you get such a diverse set of responses than having an eight-hour meeting with a team from your own area. So the concept of team is not going away, but what the, the, I'll tell you this, the tools the team uses has changed. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, you know, we I love to use a whiteboard or Post-its or paper to flowchart and outline things. And and I thought for sure that we could, you know, outlive that world, but you can't now. So with a virtual team, you can sit there. I can, I can draw the, you know, as they're talking, you draw the, uh, um, you know, draw a flowchart, ask questions. Yep. So, you know, I could, I could do a quality, a rapid improvement event in three days with 30 people and not have more than one hour, two hours with each of those people over those three days. And in the end, you found your, you found a root cause of something. Yeah. It might take longer to implement the solution, but, yeah, I think the concept of team can't go away because um, it's, even, the way, it's think, the way things really do get just, yeah, done. Yeah, it's the way work yeah. gets done. It's, yeah, but the it difference it, is individuals are working from where they are to be that team. And people well, say, well, we're losing we're losing this, we're losing that. Well, there's been companies who have been, um, you know, virtual for a long, long time. A long while. Yeah. Now that. No, we're, I'm watching my time, and this is really great stuff, Joe. I appreciate it, and we I want more. But let me put it uh, to back to how, what's changed, particularly for you, when you and I had more opportunity to see each other because I was still working at the university. You were arriving back from someplace in the world, or you were just about ready to leave again. <laughs> you had to travel a lot. Uh, and I think there's still a good reason for a Joe DeFeo to be present with decision makers and others somewhere in the world that isn't easy to, that easy to get to. There's still your, you know, used to go in and you could close a deal like very few people I ever knew in terms of getting a contract face to face. Uh, how is that for you now? I I know your suitcase is not sitting right next to your hand there, 
what's changed and for the good and sort of the not so good. Yeah, that's, you know, very, very interesting. So those of us that were in this consulting field in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, we called ourselves million milers and multi-million milers. You know, we you were. flew on airlines and got three, four, five. I met someone who had 10 million miles. That was the life. And uh, you did that because there was no alternative. You went to see the, where the problem was. And when you do that, you get really good at seeing things. Hence, here we are today. Um, I've lost a lot of my perks. The mileage are down. And <laughs> the, the, the length of the trips are shorter. So, yeah, that has dramatically changed. One is because uh, the cost of travel's gotten so expensive that companies are saying, okay, how important is this? Yeah. Um, I'm working with a university right now. And, and, and I thought, oh, my God, I got to be there every three weeks. And they're like, no, we could do it virtual. And I'm yeah. not used to that. So, so that has changed. And, and the good side is that, obviously, you can get more done. You don't have to be stuck in the plane. Uh, my weight is down. My health is up uh, and that kind of stuff. And, but the downside is I would close a deal because I would start observing as soon as I got off the plane at a given country or, you know, or a given state. I did travel to 45 countries and yeah. 48 states, but you started to observe, say, okay, this is what they're up against. You know, you can yeah. just drive into a factory parking lot and walk in and say, you know, is this going to be a good place, a safe place, a clean place? You can and tell the culture was speaking yeah. to you. Yeah. So that's the downside. You don't get that viewpoint of anybody else except in the room that you're in with the virtual. And so closing is very hard uh, because this is this is what happens um, when you are writing a, a request for proposal and 10 people write a request for proposal. Each one of them is in black and white. There's black type on a white paper answering mm -hmm. the questions they want. And the, the person knows the answer they were looking for. So mm -hmm. if you guess right, you win. Or if you're really creative or you BS a lot, you win. Uh, <laughs> when you're face-to-face, face, face, there's something about, um, you know, there's integrity. They can You can see something impromptu. I see a book on a shelf. Or I see a picture of a family on a wall. And you start mm -hmm. to, you know, personalize yourself. Now, the uh, virtual closure is a lot like the RFP process. Um, they see you, they hear you, um, you know, and they may not care that I have a picture of my eight grandchildren behind my head. You know, they may not pick, care that I'm a Yankee fan anymore. Um, and, you know, they, that, those things matter to some people. Um, I do. Heritage I do. matter. Today, it's all about, right, you know, talk about my problem right now, what you're going to do. And, and, and there's a, so it's, it's kind of back to that. Now it's just in multicolor, not in black and white. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't get to do so much, you don't get to do much homework, you know, before you go to visit. We used to go out and do a sales call, picture the lay, you know, layout, come back, write a proposal. Now I remember that very well. We'd like you to write a proposal to help us based on what we say. And what you say isn't exactly what's in the building. No. You so know? that could backfire. Always I, backfire. Always yeah. backfire. Always, yeah. always. And even, you know, today. Uh, an audit, um, you know, auditing a quality management system, which, you know, one of the services we would do. You did a lot of those. You know, we used to walk to the factory and, and, and the whole point of a auditing a quality management system isn't that you have a statistical quality control chart and critical to quality. It's that the organization that you are observing really cares about the quality given to the customer. Yeah. So when you walk around and hear disgruntled employees talking about the lousy food in the cafeteria or the, the way they're being treated versus now a virtual audit where you're only looking at the statistical control charts, you miss something. Exactly. But it's the way they're going. So, yeah. so what I do is for all my audits is that I ask now to set up a virtual focus group. I want to talk to people that are not in the audit pet trail because those are the ones that are going to tell you more. So, yeah. You lose perspective, but then you kind of figure out. It's like terrorism and counterterrorism. You figure it out. Figure it out. You got it. Changes. Did you say yeah. change is the norm now, Joe? Yeah, it's, it's the norm. There's yeah. there's always going to be a need for people to travel. There's a lot of travel from, you know, you see a lot of the people that used to be the people that occupied first class seats were consultants. Now that because you fly a lot, 
Now the first class seats are filled up by technicians. Yeah. Keeping technology, keeping technology going. And the guys living on a mountain in Boise, you know, can you go anywhere? Yeah. Yeah. Those guys are the new war, you know, the road warriors. And I would say this too. Um, this is Paul McCartney, who, by the way, if you don't know who Paul McCartney is, he was a Beatle and the Beatles were a famous group. Um, this is the Paul, I call it my Paul McCartney syndrome is that the music that he wrote in the sixties doesn't necessarily, you know, ring with a kid born in 2010. So he's a musician. So you got to make something that this kid in 2010 born who's now in 2023 lives. And so if you can't do that, you lose your, you lose your current customer. One of the hardest things today is to continue to resonate with the the younger now customers, the younger users, because they are, you know, 65 and they're all coming into the career. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's just amazing how they can turn you off because of your age. So you have to find ways that you can relate to those people. You know, when we come into our career, we're sitting, you know, opposite of 30 year olds, right? That's right. I was All of a sudden, it, man. You're, you're, in a, you're the 60 year olds and their 30 year olds are down. They're like, whoa, grandma, grandpa, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you have to, and even your own kids, you do that. You, you, that's what generational differences are. So I guess the uh, thing is to try to cross that generational divide. Yeah. I, have did a, I did a presentation a couple weeks ago with about 25 uh, young new hires in a technology company. And um, they were really very quiet at first. Like, what is this guy going to talk about? Is he going to bore us like the other people? And, <laughs> uh, and, and and in the end, they were just, they loved it. We had fun and this and that. But I was thinking, you know, Dr. Duran in his Duran videotapes, back in 1979, some people thought those were boring. I thought those were exciting. If I showed them today to this group, they would go two minutes. So, so you have <laughs> They'd to, be on have, their phones. Their eyes would be on their about, phones. So, you know, so, you know, for instance, so they have their phones, you're not going to stop them. So you better be on TikTok. Oh, so my God. I start off talking to you. I said, yeah, you on TikTok? Yeah, so am I. Check it out. Because my girls maybe do it one day. Or I don't have to give you my, I don't want to tell you my bio. Google my name and see what I, see what you come up with. And they start talking about it. So <laughs> use the tools, use the tools you have. Yeah. Did you TikTok say, dance? I did a dance. You did a TikTok dance. I did. You, um, you are my hero, man. Yeah. Oh, there he goes. He's moving the arms, folks. Yeah. Well, not I good not good at it. I have to uh, call time here. Uh, it's been wonderful, Joe. Absolutely on point for the things that my podcast has been looking at for two hundred and nine episodes. Which I is been, I talk practice. to you like you're Phil Donahue, another old timer that was great at talking. No, no, no one knows who the hell Phil Donahue is anymore. Well, he's still around. He still There's lives in DeMarlo Connecticut. Thomas, who's that? Yeah, yeah. but but uh, the, there are a couple of pieces that well, I will certainly come back to again and again and and it it still is what happens when you are present in real time with real people in in a moment though we've lost so much of that and we have to adapt but i'm going to scratch my old guy beard which i don't have and i'm going to say it's coming back i promise you face to face uh engaging real-time conversation where people can test each other out and find out who they are, like you did with those young people when they found out you could actually do the TikTok dance. That's going to be the magic again. It's just got to be better. <laughs> We've got to do it better. We've got to be more human. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to offer quality training through TikTok. Okay. There's, there we dance. are, folks. Dance <laughs> you better hurry up before Congress bans it. And when they do, there'll be a hundred million more people who want to be on it. <laughs> I figured well, out why. Everyone figured out why they call it TikTok because it used to be called Musically. No, it used to be called Musically when it first came out. Okay. Yeah, I figured out the other day why they call it TikTok because at some point in time the clock is going to stop. TikTok. Yeah, the mouse ran up the clock. Oh. Yeah. Yep. Well, it has for our our conversation, but Joe DeFeo, who is now uh, 
merged his business with a wonderful company called Attain, which, by the way, is very, very digital. And I'll I'll share the the website with them when I post this this conversation. Uh, Joe's with it; he's on it. And from my standpoint, as someone who would like to count him as one of my very very best friends, he's indispensable. And that goes the same for you, Dr. Firon, Dave, you know, you've been around a long time and I'll never forget the day you ran up the stage to look, find me and, um, and good experiences, good times. And I hope we can keep it going to your 103. All right. I've got that on tape. Wait a minute. We're not using tape. (laughs) You see, you see how it creeps back. So you got that on digits. It's good. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thank you, Doc. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcast, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to anactionresearch.com slash podcasts page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to anactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Oh, oh, how could I have forgotten? Our digital book on practice as a way of being is now available. You'll find it online at www.mylibrary.world. I worked on that book after Peter passed away, and I think you will find it a unique and very, very mobile reading experience since it's wherever your screen is in hand or at hand.